You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's November 30th, 2022, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, the U.S. Government Accountability Office issues a report on offshore oil and gas cybersecurity. The Oak Ridge National Laboratory seeks to secure power grids. BOA web server vulnerabilities are used to target energy organizations. CISA updates its infrastructure resilience planning framework and issues advisories for ICS vulnerabilities. Our guests are Mara Wynn and Guoyi Wen, joining us from the U.S. Department of Energy. Mara and Guoyi discuss their report, Cybersecurity Considerations for Distributed Energy Resources on the U.S. Electric Grid. On the Learning Lab segment, Mark Urban is back and has Dragos' CISO Steve Applegate with him on starting an OT cybersecurity program. The U.S. Government Accountability Office has published a report reviewing the cybersecurity of offshore oil and gas infrastructure. The GAO recommends that the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement immediately develop and implement a strategy to address offshore infrastructure risks. The GAO says such a strategy should include an assessment and mitigation of risks and identify objectives, roles, responsibilities, resources, and performance measures, among other things. And the report also says the Department of the Interior has generally been receptive to its recommendations. The GAO notes that the BSEE says the severity of cyber attacks could be mitigated by manual overrides. But the report adds that BSEE officials were not aware of any assessments confirming that manual controls could mitigate the impacts of cyber attacks. The GAO points to the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster as an example of an incident where even manual safety systems failed, though this event wasn't caused by a cyber attack. The report finishes, stating, BSEE has struggled to address cybersecurity risks to offshore oil and gas infrastructure, and only recently has taken steps to start a new initiative. This effort remains in the earliest stages of development. Accordingly, it is not guided by an overarching strategy that identifies cybersecurity risks. Relevant practices to address those risks, the Bureau's role in addressing them, milestones for activities such as formalizing relationships with other federal agencies and industry organizations, resource needs such as appropriate staffing levels, and performance measures to assess results. The U.S. Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory is researching ways to use high-fidelity sensors and blockchain technology to secure electric grids against cyber attacks. The project, dubbed DarkNet, is focused on securing grid equipment and communications. ORNL stated, DarkNet researchers are developing a private network architecture that grid operators can scale up and use to quickly and accurately control power generation and transmission equipment that may sit hundreds or thousands of miles away 
from a central operational control center without fear of cyber intrusion. The scientists are testing the architecture on ORNL's own grid equipment. Next, they will demonstrate communication on a regional scale and later on a national scale. Microsoft has expanded on an attack earlier described by Recorded Future back in April, in which Chinese state-sponsored actors targeted Indian power grid organizations. An Indian national emergency response system and the Indian subsidiary of a multinational logistics company. Microsoft says the attackers exploited BOA, an open-source web server that was discontinued in 2005. The researchers note that BOA is still used by different vendors across a variety of IoT devices and popular software development kits. Microsoft determined that all of the IP addresses published as IOCs by Recorded Future were connected to BOA servers, and half of these IP addresses returned suspicious headers. The researchers explain, Investigating the headers further indicated that over 10% of all active IP addresses returning the headers were related to critical industries, such as the petroleum industry and associated fleet services, with many of the IP addresses associated to IoT devices, such as routers, with unpatched critical vulnerabilities, highlighting an accessible attack vector for malware operators. Most of the suspicious HTTP response headers were returned over a short time frame of several days, leading researchers to believe they may be associated with intrusion and malicious activity on networks. Microsoft found that there are currently over a million BOA servers exposed to the Internet, the majority of which are located in India. The researchers conclude, The popularity of the BOA web server displays the potential exposure risk of an insecure supply chain, even when security best practices are applied to devices in the network. Updating the firmware of IoT devices does not always patch SDKs or specific SOC components, and there is limited visibility into components and whether they can be updated. The known CVEs impacting such components can allow an attacker to collect information about network assets before initiating attacks and to gain access to a network undetected by obtaining valid credentials. Microsoft adds that this reconnaissance is particularly important when launching attacks against ICS environments, stating, In critical infrastructure networks, being able to collect information undetected prior to the attack allows the attackers to have much greater impact once the attack is initiated, potentially disrupting operations that can cost millions of dollars and affect millions of people. ESET reports a surge in a ransomware variant the company calls Ransom Bogs. Deployed against Ukrainian targets, the malware is written in .NET and represents a new strain of ransomware, but the deployment, ESET says, is similar to what they've observed in Sandworm activity in the past. Sandworm has been associated with Russia's GRU. The researchers tweeted, There are similarities with previous attacks conducted by Sandworm, a PowerShell script used to distribute the .NET ransomware from the domain controller is almost identical to the one seen last April during the Indestroyer 2 attacks against the energy sector. ESET also sees similarities between Ransom Bogs and Iridium, Microsoft's name for the GRU operation the company detected in prestige ransomware attacks against Polish and Ukrainian targets in October. CISA has released an updated version of its infrastructure resilience planning framework. 
to help state, local, tribal, and territorial planners. The new version of the IRPF includes a new tool for identifying critical infrastructure, the Data Sets for Critical Infrastructure Identification Guide. This data set provides users with guidance on how and where to find publicly accessible geospatial information systems on critical infrastructure assets via the Homeland Infrastructure Foundation-level data site, as well as several other GIS sites. It provides guidance on the challenges of getting a diverse set of opinions when planning. It can be challenging to get all the right stakeholders together and ensure that a diverse range of opinions and interests are considered. The IRPF 1.1 expands on the process of gathering stakeholders. It provides new drought resilience information via CISA's National Drought Resilience Partnership. This includes a new guide that provides an overview of the drought hazard, examples of direct and indirect impacts it can have on infrastructure systems, and federal resources for assessing and mitigating drought risk. And it includes revised resilience concepts that incorporates CISA's methodology for assessing regional infrastructure resilience. It provides additional details on analytic methods that planners can use to improve their understanding of infrastructure systems in their community. On Tuesday, November 29th, CISA issued a number of ICS advisories. As always, check CISA's website for the latest information. Mara Wynn is Deputy Director for Preparedness, Policy, and Risk Analysis at the Department of Energy's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. Guawi Wen is Program Manager for the Department of Energy's Solar Grid Integration, Research, and Development. I spoke to both of them about the DOE's recently released report, Cybersecurity Considerations for Distributed Energy Resources on the U.S. Electric Grid. So I sit in Department of Energy's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. And when we look at how the energy system across the U.S. is going to change, we see those rapid transformation of the electric grid with an increasing number of distributed energy resources. We know that Americans produce and consume energy is shifting, and we need to embrace a cleaner, more efficient, sustainable future. So as these distributed energy resources are integrated on the grid, it's critical we continue to maintain the reliability that customers expect. And this means preparing for all hazards, including cybersecurity, natural disasters, and other physical security events. Well, Guo can you can you explain to us what exactly we're talking about here with this transition? I mean, what... What in the in the most recent years is shifting from how the grid has traditionally run? Sure. So there are two mega trends that are converging together here. Uh, on the one side, uh, because uh, the decarbonization, decarbonization goals of the administration were deploying a lot of the renewables, wind and solar, and on top of that, uh, the, some of these technologies are connected on the distribution grid. We call it the distribution energy resources or DERs. So that's one uh, trend. The other trend is that the grid is undergoing a, a massive transformation by integrating a lot of the digital technologies, communications, data, as well as uh, automation controls. So those are coming together and it makes the planning and operation of the grid 
uh, a lot different from the traditional grid. And where do we stand today in terms of executing this transition? I mean, there's there's certainly been talk for the past few years about uh, things shifting online and, and some of the cybersecurity concerns. What's the lay of the land today? I'll jump in first with that. With the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, Department of Energy alone has six billion that it's directing towards towards clean energy transition currently in motion across all 50 states. So that is a significant influx. We are seeing the focus on resilience and clean energy starting to enter the grid, starting to be a a significant topic of conversation, Um, even with our utility partners, not just those on the ground doing the direct DER work, but those that know that this is going to integrate into the grid. And part of the work that we're doing here is to make sure the conversations are starting early. We need to do security by design. We need to make sure that these energy resources are entering our systems in a safe and secure way that not only takes into account their individual risks, but how they're bringing their risks and connecting into the greater nation's infrastructure. Just to follow up on that, uh, so on the technology side, uh, there are many different technologies that we're talking about here. So when we talk about DER, we're really talking about solar, we're talking about energy storage, electric vehicles, buildings, and so on and so forth. So this diverse of the technologies uh, actually uh, are making the things and work in cybersecurity, defense, and the grid operation more complex. Uh, and uh, the one of the purpose of this report is to raise the awareness that Mara was talking about. First of all, the different industries have a different uh, perspective of what cybersecurity is, even though there are many standards out there. Uh, they're not uh, consistent sometimes, and uh, a lot of the standards need to be refined. Uh, need to be harmonized. For example, on the uh, DER side, solar side, there is a 1547.3 standard. Then you have the at the ballpark system, you have a, a so-called a, a SIP, uh, which is a critical infrastructure protection standard that's a protecting ballpark system. And then you have an EV standard and then so on and so forth. So these standards can be confusing sometimes and they need to be uh, harmonized, and a lot of that is awareness and education. And we also recognize that people are starting in different places. You have some entities that are very sophisticated, they understand the nuances, and we want to make sure we're meeting them where they are. But we also understand that there's a lot of entities in this mix that just haven't even approached this. Um, so making sure adopting the best practices um, and meeting minimum security requirements are part of the conversation. Because of that diversity of different types of energy resources, we know that we have to cast a greater net to make sure that we are integrating with lots of different stakeholder communities that may not have been part of the energy security conversation in the past, but we know we need to bring them into the fold, support them, make sure that they have the resources to uh, meet the needs of our future energy infrastructure. Yeah, you know, you talk about uh, resiliency, and, and I think that's really striking in that you know, my understanding is that our, our energy grid tends to be kind of regional. Um, are we talking about more connectivity between those regional players? Is is that part of uh, the future of our grid? Let me answer that first. Uh, the future, that's one future of the grid. Uh, and uh, if you look at the, the, uh, today's uh, 
grid is already connected uh, uh, at the national scale. Um, so uh, what we are talking about the future grid is uh, at the more at the distribution level where a lot of technologies are happening, are being deployed. So that's why we're focusing on DERs. And the other uh, aspect of this is that the DERs are usually not owned by the utilities and the system operators. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, they are connected to the grid. So they have impacted the grid, but they're not, uh, you know, uh, monitors are controlled by the system operator. Therefore, they present uh, additional challenges for ensuring the grid reliability and uh, security. Yeah, and I'll also add, because I, I love that word resilience, right? And and when we think about resilience, we think about adding in a lot of these resources into our grid to give us resilience so we don't have a single point of failure. We think about the hurricanes that come through. We think about other kinds of natural disasters. As climate change continues to evolve, we have to be prepared for that future state that we're in, and we need resilient solutions to be part of that. And, and DERs are a key component of it. But we also need to make sure that implementing cybersecurity requirements, a grid and DER planners should build cyber defenses in with the goal of surviving an attack while maintaining critical functionality. That's also resilience. We need to make sure when we're trying to solve one problem, we don't create another vulnerability in the grid. You know, one of the things as I read through the report that, that comes up uh, over and over again is the, is the notion of partnership and, and how important that is uh, at the federal level, at, at the local level, the, the providers and, and even the consumers themselves. Can you speak to that some, Mara? Can I start with you? I mean, this, is, this really is a team effort here. It really is. You know, historically, many DER partners have not been part of our prior partnerships with the Department of Energy. And also the oversight that operated and maintained the power grid, the electric power liability and security requirements and responsibilities haven't been part of the conversations. But we need to bring them into that conversation. We've been doing a lot of outreach with the Department of Energy, making sure that we're meeting those stakeholders where they are. And it also requires a different approach than you would take with some of the major utilities because you have people meeting in different places, communities forming in different environments. That's one of my favorite things about our partnership with GOE's office is they are on the ground doing the work in the development, and we're able to fold in all of those energy security and cybersecurity conversations to the design effort because that's we want to meet the communities where they are. We know that we have to think more flexibly because it's not one single entity and ensure that we are appreciating the challenges of these communities. Yeah, just to follow up on that, uh, we really uh, appreciate the partnership with the Caesar office uh, that Mara represents. Uh, a big part of the stakeholder engagement is education. Uh, we want uh, uh, different communities to understand that there are resources available to them. Uh, a lot of times that they don't know they're there and uh, they just uh, are confused, overwhelmed at the different information I mentioned standards. And there are other information as well that's out there and they don't know which way it is the requirement and which way it's nice to have. So a big part of it is education. So we, we do that through collaboration with the national labs uh, and uh, actually Sandia and Rel were part of uh, the, uh, the report, uh, supporting the report as well as uh, uh, working with the communities. Uh, I give an example uh, that we're working with the national state energy offices and uh, the national uh, regulatory uh, commission called the NARUC 
to uh, really spread the word, educate them as well, so that the decision makers can understand the challenge of cybersecurity and what type of tools available to them. Uh, there are a lot of uh, people involved, and we need everybody to really pay attention to cybersecurity challenges and uh, know where the resources are and work with us. Yeah, that's a, a an excellent point because we need to make sure good governance is implemented, designing security into utility and DER systems from the beginning, and making security a priority for all the employees, suppliers, and customers. It needs to be part of the regular conversations, but also incentivizing cyber resilience. We talk about some of the regulations that go into our energy systems. The Department of Energy is not a regulator, but we are making sure that those who are regulators are knowledgeable on what the challenges are and what practices need to be in place. We need to make sure that cyber resilience is incentivized and it goes beyond the standards and work to actively detect threats and adopt a zero trust approach to verify commands and data. We need to make sure that it is a comprehensive system and people understand the whys, as Goey was explaining, so they can take the proper actions. Yeah, it strikes me that, um, you know, obviously there are challenges ahead, but this also presents a tremendous opportunity here, especially as you mentioned, you know, we've, we're in a position where there is some good funding available. Uh, are the two of you optimistic uh, as you look ahead towards the horizon? I am very excited. I think that there is a significant influx of funding from all different sources. And even within the private sector community, I had the opportunity to go to the RE Plus conference in September and see a lot of this work on the ground. And you see the excitement and you see the camaraderie of these communities coming together to drive a lot of change. And and I think that that funding conversation needs to also make sure that we are discussing the cybersecurity practices as part of it. We can't design blind to them and then expect us to have a resilient uh, and reliable system that we expect from our infrastructure today. I would agree. Uh, and uh, just to give an example about the excitement, not only at the DOE level and National Labs, uh, so recently I supported, uh, we supported the CSER uh, in this uh, uh, cybersecurity competition this year. The theme is solar. And uh, the organizers developed a scenario where the solar powered EV manufacturer was uh, 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 compromised and then what the solutions could be. We have more than 100 teams that are joining, college teams are joining the competition. There's exception in there. And there's a, we know there's a lot of next generation cybersecurity experts that are coming out of the pipeline. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's a great point because we need to make sure when we go work with these organizations, with these companies, with these businesses, and tell them the requirements that you also have the people who are trained and understand. And it's not just an IT problem, it's an OT problem as well. And making sure that that excitement exists within those who are in the learning communities. Cyberforce is a great program with the collegiate community. It's a great competition to drive a lot of that excitement. And we try to make sure that it's relevant to today's issues. And so as Koei said, it talked about a solar farm that was tied into an electric vehicle charging station. And you had students working to defend it and working with our best red team experts across the national labs. So they are ready to take on these challenges in the world of, that we're building. Our thanks to Mara Wynn and Guawi Wen from the Department of Energy for joining us.
In our Learning Lab segment in part one of a two-part series on starting an OT cybersecurity program, Mark Urban speaks with Dragos's CISO, Stephen Applegate. Hi, Mark Urban with the Learning Lab. Today we're going to get a CISO perspective on building an OT security program. And I'm fortunate to be joined by Steve Applegate, uh, the CISO here at Dragos. Steve, welcome. Hey, how's it going, Mark? It's going well. So, you know, we actually got talking at uh, the lead up to DISC, uh, the recent uh, Dragos Industrial Security Conference that we held just outside of Baltimore. And you and I got started talking about you've been in a couple different places uh, overlooking security, uh, helping to make that transition to OT security. And so came up with the idea for this episode to, to talk through some of those observations and some of those experiences that you've had. So I wonder, maybe you can start out with just a little bit of background and, and how you got here, Steve. Sure. Yep. Uh, so I started my IT career back in 1989 um, when I, I was assigned uh, by the United States Air Force to work as a computer specialist at NORAD, um, Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Base. I continued on in DOD for probably about 10 years, 11 years. And in various roles, uh, starting as active duty, and then I ended up as a, a contractor. And I, you know, my first experience with OT actually happened during that ten years. I was I joined a contract in Iceland where uh, the company I was working for was developing and a very early kind of you could call it rudimentary distributed control system. And I got to do some like real nitty gritty uh, device driver device driver programming. And, and I was, you know, it was kind of an additional duty while I was also supporting a bunch of developers and doing sysadmin and network admin kind of work. Um, and I, I continued on in, you know, in a very highly technical roles over the years. Um, probably the first half of my career, you know, was technical. And then over time, I found myself in leadership roles um, increasingly. Uh, and my last about eight years, I've been in leadership, uh, starting with Saudi Aramco, where I was helping uh, the the first CISO ever, like was building a program and, and was taking over the, you know, organizing and, and centralizing all the security functions into one group. And I got to kind of help, you know, work with all these different stakeholders and especially on the OT side and, and some really great people like pulling together, you know, all the initiatives and organizing it all. And then I went from there, uh, followed that the, the gentleman back to Marathon Petroleum, uh, where I was kind of in an acting CISO role. And, and doing some work with as they were doing a, a big uh, merger and acquisition and stuff. I left Marathon a couple of years later and went to PepsiCo, where I was the um, deputy CISO for the global enterprise there. And probably about 500 plants, if you, depending on how you define a plant. I'm very heavy. You know, I was a stakeholder on the OT side and got to do a lot of really cool early work with helping to accelerate that program. And then uh, uh, two years ago, roughly, um, joined Dragos as as the first CISO here. I guess that gets you up to speed <laughs> on my life. All right. Well, that's a that's a pretty deep, uh, pretty deep experience base. Uh, you know, as you you talk about a number of stops and you know some of the projects, especially as you kind of aggregated experience. If you were to then look at when you were when you're making that transition to looking at the OT security problem set, what, you know, what are your observations on, you know, the keys to 
Because a lot, a lot of the people that we work with, a lot of the companies that we work with tend to be, you know, have fairly mature IT organizations from a security perspective, but OT has lagged behind the investment curve and, and only now is getting a tremendous amount of attention. And I think you've been in situations like that. So I wonder, you know, as you make that jump to looking at building that OT security program, you know, what are the, some of the observations that you make about, you know, key steps? Oh, that's that's a really cool angle um, to take the conversation. I, I know, you know, there, there's a there's a credibility gap when people from IT or people from the business, you know, from a non OT background, come in and try to start dictating how things have to be, and they try to take some of those really key learnings that we've had in IT for for decades, literally uh, IT security programs. And they try to apply them directly or they try to shoehorn them in. And, and you, you mentioned the OT problem. I mean, it's absolutely a different problem, a different uh, a set of circumstances and a different set of risks. And, you know, even the prioritization, you know, that's like OT Security 101 looks at, you know, at turning upside down the CIA triad and says the most the first thing you got to look at is is availability. So you flip it over. And, you know, a lot of times. IT people meaning well, of course. I think I always kind of you know give people the benefit of the doubt, but they try to take these the IT mindset in, and they lack that credibility with OT. Um, the solutions they offer are wholly you know wholly wrong and even dangerous or harmful. You know, and and I I I can go back to my practitioner days, and I remember very clearly when I made a mistake like that, and I I've tried to slap an ant you know an old school antivirus solution onto a control system. And I, and I ended up forcing a failover. Luckily we didn't have a true outage because of it, but I learned a very early lesson in my career that you can't just take it mindset and, and just make it work in OT. Um, you know, a lot of people are, I've heard it said before that governance, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the actual, the cause of any breach or any security problem you have, you could point it eventually. If you look back for the root cause, you could say there's a governance breakdown of some sort, um, yeah, I'm not sure that you could say every single problem could be could be blamed on governance, but you know I know that you know governance plays such an important part. It's so foundational um, that especially in OT where you have such a complexity. You know you've got uh, different leaders, different chain of command, different mindset, different language, you know, different vernacular, and and to try to you know overcome that with loosey goosey kind of governance. Of just hey you know I know so and so over there I'll give them a call you know and, and there's no written processes and, and you try to somehow make that work sometimes those trust relationships will will help to get you to a point but eventually there's going to be a governance breakdown and I just feel like you know with that that balance trying to trying to show them that you care you you feel their pain you understand all of the you know critical systems that they run and and you have the same <clears throat> um, emphasis that they do or the same you know priorities. Um, trying to f- find the right fit so you don't immediately jump to super mature pro- processes that can't be maintained once you put them in. Um, you know, there's that that inflexibility if you if you jump to too much maturity and then you slow down the business, you create like analysis paralysis and 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 those early losses like that can end up killing a whole program. So it's super important to find that that good balance of you know base true risk based controls that are at just the right level so that you don't end up with a fragile environment that doesn't survive the test of time and stuff. Don't get too fancy, too complex out of the gate because that's hard to sustain. 
Absolutely. Everything has to be build to sustain. You know, when you first go into the build portion, you say, what are we going to put in? You have to say, okay, who can maintain this when we're done? Because if you're missing like missing head count, missing budget dollars, even just the cycles, you know, those plant people, a lot of times plant people, you know, that are that are full time E&I techs or, you know, engineers working on a plant um, they're in their spare time. They're going to operate a lot of this, the, the security uh, components that we put in. So, you know, you have to try to understand what the true support needs are, um, what the level of effort is required to keep it evergreen. Otherwise, you put something in that actually will hurt your program instead of helping it. That's great. It's like, you know, one of the things that has become clear to me, especially through this podcast, is industrial systems are so much about locking in, you know, specific ways to do things and then just repeating it, repeating it, repeating it at, you know, massive uh, repetition and and scale, and that when you change processes, those are significant events as well that require a lot of planning, you know, maintenance outage. And so I think what I'm hearing you say is, you know, industrial processes are built a certain way to keep them relatively simple so that you can be repeatable, you know, in an automated way. And as you change, you have to take a lot of precautions, a lot of preparation to then change those capabilities. And I think that that serves your point of, you know, keeping things simple to, you know, be able to maintain that consistency seems to fit very well with that environment. I really like that. Yeah. That, there's a lot to unpack in what you said. You know, these these people that are maintaining the systems in a plant and in, in an OT environment, you know, they're, they're actually, you know, they're pushing buttons that cause fire explosions to happen, opening valves, closing valves, doing all kinds of super critical stuff. And, and if we uh, overcomplicate the security, you know, and, and it takes resources away from, you know, their actual process control, um, not only is it not sustainable, again, that's where I, I use the word dangerous, you know, um, it, it also can, you know, so much of a company uh, that has a big OT presence, so much of their uh, revenue is dependent on those everything happening in a plant, every process being perfect every time. Um, deterministic protocols, you know, you miss one ping on one system, uh, it could be catastrophic. And, and you know, something might not happen at the exact right time. And I don't know, I, I don't want to be too grandiose, but you know, a lot of the, you know, what's the worst case scenario? Somebody could die, or there could be a chemical spill that actually you know pollutes a, a water system or you know in a, a watershed or something. So the, the stakes are so high that keeping it simple, I think, is just critical. And and not even just simple, but keep you know securing at the right level. Like like whenever you know I was working at an electrical utility, um, whenever NERCSIP was first coming about, and we had all kinds of great meetings and and talking about how can we meet these requirements and things. And a lot of times we would want to we get you know a bunch of engineers in a room. We'd all start talking about how we could engineer something that's just a world class, second to none. But the the fact of the matter is we didn't have to. You know the minimum security is what you strive for, right? You're not trying to protect anything over what your appetite is or what, what your understanding of the risk uh, management, you know, what risk appetite leaves you with. I guess that's back to my first point of governance, right? Because if you if you really understand governance, you've got a defined risk appetite. You, you know, you're able to stop without overprotecting and just put in the minimum that's required. Steve Applegate, uh, CISO at Dragos, and I'm Mark Urban for this week's Learning Lab. Thanks very much, Steve.
That's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.